like lots of bad shit happens and everyone hates it. And it's like, man, that sucks. That's the new objective and unchangeable reality we have to reckon with, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is What's Left of Philosophy. I'm Owen, and here with me today is Gil. Hello. Lillian. Hi. And Will. What's up? So in today's episode, we're discussing Machiavelli, um, specifically the prints and some passages from the discourses. In many ways, Machiavelli is one of those thinkers who needs no introduction. His notoriety, even infamy, are inscribed in the English language. Machiavellian means cunning, scheming, and unscrupulous. But this very apparent familiarity betrays the, the complexity both of his thought and its reception. Perhaps no other thinker has been claimed by such diverse political and theoretical movements. His work has been an inspiration to conservatives, to Marxists, and to communists, to classical and contemporary republicanism, um, and to many others. Given the nature of our podcast, it should come as no surprise that Machiavelli's recruitment to the side of historical materialist philosophy and the politics of the left is particularly significant, but his potential contributions to the Republican notion of freedom as non-domination is something I also hope to explore. Uh, so in our discussion today, there are a few concepts and problems that have been especially significant for these traditions that I want to focus on. Firstly, his notion of virtue or political virtue. So despite his reputation for endorsing pure ruthlessness, this is how he's usually known, virtue is arguably the most important concept in his entire corpus. Of course, his notion of virtue is rig rigorously distinguished from our usual understanding of moral virtue and has to do with the ability to mold the course of events, to meet the forces of fortuna with strategic cunning. But contrary to his popular caricature, Machiavelli does not dismiss the moral virtues entirely and has harsh words for figures like Agathocles the Sicilian, who knows only cruelty and violence. Likewise, his admiration for the Roman Republic in the discourses is due to his contention that at no other time in history has so much virtue flourished in one place. So I want to focus on that concept of virtue, firstly. And then secondly, I want to talk a little bit about the peculiar place he occupies in philosophy. Not only as a matter of like personal biography, since he was politically active, but as Gramsci and Althusser have emphasized, uh, Machiavelli was a fierce partisan, and he wrote and thought from a position of partisanship. The Prince is a manifesto for the liberation of Italy from foreign control, and as such, it, I see it as, a, as an early participant in the rich tradition of partisan philosophical works, such as those written by Marx and Engels, Franz Fanon, and others. Philosophy in his hands does not seek to resolve philosophical problems. It doesn't even address them. Rather, Machiavelli's partisan philosophical practice addresses itself to problems in the world, a world in which it aspires to become a force. And so those are the two things I'd like to start our discussion with, that concept of virtue and then the weird status, I guess, that Machiavelli has as a, a philosopher who doesn't care about philosophy, a philosopher, a philosopher who cares about the world and cares about practice and addresses himself exclusively to that. What do you all think are some of the dominant interpretations of that 
concept of virtue or political virtue. I feel like there's a lot of different actors that use this. Like, what is it supposed to be? Like, is it a classical notion of, of virtue or is it something else? Like, when we think about like an ancient idea of virtue of like right-mindedness and moderation mm. and so on. I feel like he means something different, like in, in a specifically political kind of virtue. And this is why people sort of run with Machiavelli. But I think there's some different ways of using it that I'm curious to know what your impressions of it are. Yeah, I think, I think it has a number of, you know, it has diverse sources. I mean, one of them, I, I think, is a kind of Aristotelian notion of phronesis or like practical, practical wisdom or practical reason. But unlike Kant, like a practical reason that's actually practical. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, clearly he's trying to just both, you know, take over a number of traditions and to distinguish himself from a number of understandings of virtue, right? So he rigorously distinguishes that concept of virtue from any Christian conception we might have of it relating to like piety or, or chastity or any of those pious or deeply moral notions of virtue. Um, but it's also not just... I guess it's the problem is, is that it's different in the in the prints than um, versus in the discourses, right? And then mm. there are two different projects in a certain way, right? Vir virtue in, in the prints has to do with like virtue of political practice specifically, right? It has to do with a virtue virtue as the capacity to maintain, to acquire, and to maintain power, mm -hmm. right? And then whereas elsewhere he'll speak in the discourses, for example, of the virtue of the the virtues of the citizenry who don't become like you know don't become basically lazy and, and useless because of too much access to resources or, you know, a kind of poor culture, which, you know, he, he says basically mm -hmm. that, you know, that you have to have a populace that possesses a certain level of discipline. So like there's, mm -hmm. there's virtue at the level of the citizenry, then there's virtue at the level of the, of the prince and they seem to be distinct. And I think it's worth at least kind of marking that distinction. Yeah. So it's really cool that we're doing this right after Spinoza because I see them being so closely related and so on the same page in so many ways. And I think that, you know, some people think of Spinoza as a virtue, as a virtue ethicist. And it's true, but like it's much more in this sort of Machiavellian way where virtue does mean something like at least in the Prince, right? as like power or like capacity mm -hmm. more than sort of any sense of like, I don't know, moral uprightness. I mean, so like, you know, you brought up the instance of Agathocles, Right. And this was like in the part of the prince where he's talking about, I think it's the chapter on, on cruelty, right? Whether it's better to be feared or loved, if I'm not mistaken. But he brings up Agathocles who he like captures his state. He becomes a prince just by just by doing the most worst, the worst stuff ever. And he's extremely extra about it. He's like, yeah, he brought in all his friends and he killed him. And then a couple weeks later, he killed all his friends again and you know, he was poisoning everybody and lying and it's, it's really bad he, he just scene. kept at it. <laughs> he just couldn't stop killing. Can't stop um, stuff. He's like that. He says something interesting, which is that those people, people like that, might be able to seize power, but they'll never be able to get glory, glory, which I think is interesting. You know, and it's sort of also like, you know, Hobbes says similar things, too, about how, like, there's this, like, power question and this glory question. They're not the same. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But he also, he just, and as a matter of, like, real politic, he's just like, well, Agathocles fucked up like turns out he went like you know if you actually want to seize power just doing it like that's not gonna like he he's able to yeah but again it's not a moral issue right like it's not a moral issue yeah, exactly like if you're the problem with being that cruel is that you become hateful right he says it's important exactly. to have notoriety but as soon as you become hateful hate is now one of the forces in the field of force relations you have to contend with 
Right, right. Where he says, like, you know, if if it's true that you can't both be feared and loved, you know, rather be feared, but don't be don't be hated, right? You can be feared without being hated, and he thinks that that's an important pragmatic. Yeah, because he thinks that you have to do enough good things over time, but consistently, mm-hmm. so that people stay grateful. So right. you can be feared, but people can be grateful. So he has this whole way of like rationing out the kind of, I guess, ethics that the population mm-hmm. is supposed to have under uh, a virtuous, in a virtuous republic, or in one case, the prince, but also he talks about this in terms of the balance of powers in the republic at large. Mm-hmm. So there's a virtue management regime that I feel like Machia- yeah. Machiavelli oh. is interested in. <laughs> Yeah, I, when I was reading Machiavelli, you know, especially the part that you all are talking about now, it's about ratios, right? You know, so he's saying mm-hmm. like, you know, it is better if you're building a new state to do all the violence at once. Do it, do it <laughs> quick, do it dirty, but then you have something stable and you know, let the people know that this is something good. The worst thing you can do is you do that violence, and but, but not all at once. You just keep parceling it out day by day by day, and that's a recipe for rebellion and revolution. And so the way that I understood Machiavelli on virtue, and I also love this concept, is that you know it seems like it, the way it works is it's not necessarily Machiavelli has to be saying something like you know there is no morality but what he's saying is in the field of forces that is politics those virtues that you describe in the field of morality are not virtues in this field of forces they don't have the capacity to do the things that you want to do to mold events etc so what he's describing as virtue are the skills that are indexed to this contextual field that is politics and that must mean that politics is you know a specifically delimited space of activity that's different than what you do between you know your friends you know in our you know our little beginning bit you know Owen made a joke about I'm not sure it'd be great to be a Machiavellian in a romantic relationship I imagine there are certain (laughs) virtues of the prince that aren't great in romantic relationships (laughs) maybe I don't know I don't know like you know I'm probably a terrible partner but yeah and so virtue is about power relative to the sort of terms of order of the field that they're operating in that's what I was starting I to get from Machiavelli. Right. Uh, I like that insistence on the specificity of politics. I yeah. think it's one of Machiavelli's like, great kind of contributions to the history of thought is to take politics as its own object, not understood in relation to theology, not subordinated to moral categories, but analyzed on its own terms. And so it's not the, the point isn't to be immoral in that sense, right? The point is to ask a different set of questions and to find a different set of imperatives that are proper to a, a particular domain. Right? So Not that you can all stop faking each other out that these papal states are like in line yeah. with like the city of God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that you can have a, a moment of real talk in the no, right. Nobody knows force century. and fraud more than the Pope. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean like the, the, the text of political philosophy at this time until Machiavelli comes around is like the Summa Theologica, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Where we're talking about the Civitas Dei. That's like a very different. Mm-hmm. And there we have like that. That is governed by the sort of old Aristotelian concept of virtue, where there's this like hierarchy of like different modes of like uh, relating to one another, and like the the, vir- the virtue then of like you know the ruler is the same as the virtue of everybody mm-hmm. else. And Machiavelli and Machiavelli's like no, like this stuff is actually like the way that you were putting it. Will I like it a lot? Is very context specific, right? Like in each case, the question is going to be what does what is it 
what does it look like to be virtuous here and now, given this existing organization of force relations? And this is why he's like, all of his like examples are always so rich because he's like, well, yeah, I know it sounded like I was saying that this or that characteristic is always good, but who didn't work here, did it? You know, <laughs> because the situation was different. It's conjunctural. Totally. Right? That, I th that's why I think the question of even like literally in your original question is a good one. Just what is virtue and where is he getting this concept from? Because his way of proceeding, like his method is not very philosophical in a certain sense. Like he doesn't offer a definition of virtue anywhere. Right? He, d he doesn't offer definitions. I don't think, he very rarely, let's put it this way. I don't want to go, I don't want to go all in. we have definitions of like principality. Yeah, exactly. But he very <laughs> rarely gives you definitions, right? He, what he tries to do is to, from a combination of historical examples and contemporary experience, right, to draw out the meaning of a concept through an analysis of its place and its, you know, its specificity to a specific situation, to a situation. Okay. Specificity yeah. to a specific, its specificity to a situation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave that in. Absolutely. <laughs> specificity to a specific? Damn, that's real specific. Oh, <laughs> that man. is extraordinarily specific. That's right. But I thought, I was thinking of the example of, um, for instance, um, and there's like a part of his analysis here that I actually wanted to talk about. Um, but he's talking about Hannibal at some point, like, you know, the military leader. And he's like, you know, when you're the ruler of, of a principality, like you don't want to be cruel, right? Cruelty is going to, again, engender this hatred that people are going to, you know, hold it against you and so on. He's like, but it's different when you're running an army. Sometimes then cruelty is actually the way to go. And so like Hannibal was able to, you know, achieve all of this great military success in part in and through of his like excessive cruelty. And the thing that's interesting about the, what he's, one of the things that he says there is like historians condemn Hannibal yes. for his cruelty while praising his successes, not understanding that there's like a causal relationship here. And this happens a bunch in, in his like reading of these historical cases. He's like, people are constantly condemning the causes of the effects that they've this is This is what Kant, exactly what Kant does with the French Revolution, right? Where he says that, you know, basically the actors of the French Revolution were deeply immoral and they should have never done any of the stuff that they did. But... <laughs> We have to Great praise. Stuff like, came it, from it, the, though. We have to praise the moral <laughs> significance of, and the, you know, we basically have to see as moral, morally praiseworthy, the effects of the revolution. It's kind of like you, your friend brings you like a big screen TV, and you love it. And like yo, I stole it <laughs> off the back of a truck. Like you know what? Hey. But yo, I love this TV though. Like, but I, no, I am going to keep the television. <laughs> yeah, like, I am absolutely going to keep the television. I'm definitely not returning it. <laughs> First of all, any absolutely. friend that responds in that way ain't a real friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Take that TV. They're not a real friend. Yeah. You know, as you all were talking, you know, I'm wondering if what's uh, what I find fascinating with Machiavelli is he's actually even assuming that you can do a science of politics, but obviously it's not a science that takes place in the lab. He thinks the real world is where we do our experimentations. So I was caught by you know it's, it's weird reading Machiavelli. It's just so many historical examples, and you you might start to think how is this philosophy? But he's thinking a philosophy that really stands the test of being a force in the world has to actually look at the evidence. And so the, the type of science he's doing is that if politics is a field of forces, at some points you can almost feel him saying, we can start to map this out and quantify it. And that's how we can start to understand mm -hmm. you know, what virtues and specific conjunctures are going to win out. To assume that there is a type of rationality to the field of politics that, you know, well, he's writing a prince for, you know, other leaders that with this knowledge they can now know how it is to rule.
Right. I feel like I was going to say something similar. I There's this conversation about Machiavelli where I feel like we have to think about different interpretations of him. So there's a mainstream interpretation of Machiavelli of like real politic. Like a, a, there's just it's sort of everything is sort of like a random contest of, of power and affects. And, and this exists on the on the right. And then it also exists on the left, oddly enough, like a kind of left populism. Um, you know, how to navigate the political sphere by just making various content contestations discursively or in movements, like bodies banging against each other and so on. And then, unsurprisingly, I wonder about the materialist interpretation, which I feel like when I read Machiavelli, I just, it opens up to me so immediately because he talks about there's these effects that happen and there's a rationality to them. There is, we can start to piece together this way of thinking about political development and the evolution of certain effects. And we can do that by looking at their causes. And specifically, when we want to understand why some regimes have more virtue than others, it's because of the way that they're organized. So why is the Roman Republic better? Why is it so close to perfection and more virtuous than any other republic? Well, there was there was these plebeians, the plebs, and they had these tribunes, and they were able to be intermediary between the what was it the assembly the senate and yeah the senate and the nobility and the consulate yeah. but this is ambiguous because the reason this can still be a sort of idealist machiavelli is that even though he's talking about causes he is just talking about political institutions and so you can isolate this realm of the political and think of have this kind of institutional machiavelli but it is just one small step to ask, okay, but are those are those the only causes? Are those the deep causes? And then you're into more materialist territory. Not that the institutions don't ma don't matter; they do. But why did they take on those forms? Why were in the people in a position to be in those tribunes and yeah. and so on? So there's just these there's these different versions of it. There's the institutionalist. There's the kind of more right wing real politic version. There's the left wing populist version. And I don't think that Machiavelli was like a historical materialist, but there's this opening for it. And I don't know. just wanted to throw those options out there. I like that a lot. I mean, we, we get into a similar problem maybe that Gill identifies with sp the reception of Spinoza as a kind of materialist. And because there is, I think there's so much in Machiavelli, like in Spinoza, that lends itself to a historical materialist philosophy. But there's also a lot that I think you know, resists being appropriated in that way. But I think specifically with the question of politics and these institutions in the states, like one of the things I think has appealed to Marxists and historical materialists about Machiavelli is that there's a thinking of the state in its specificity, not just as a kind of pale reflection of material conditions, right? And so one of the things I think that, that drew Gramsci and then the later Althusser also to Machiavelli was basically Machiavelli functioned as a kind of resource for pushing beyond what they felt was a tired and, you know, monocausal view of the state as just a, an epiphenomenal outcome of economic processes, right? So you don't have to hypostatize the state and, like, isolate it and fetishize it as a result of that. But I do think that it, Machiavelli is very helpful you know, if you're trying to not entirely collapse politics into the economic Machiavelli is one place to go to figure out, well, what is specific to politics then? Like, what are we doing when we do politics that isn't the same thing as raw class struggle? Right. Okay. So I'm just going to, I just want to add one more thing about this, that like, I, I get that. 
and I'm friendly to that because I feel like if you are a political agent in a modern state, like I, and, or you want to kind of understand what is going on in the processes therein, then like there is something really useful here. I feel like the kind of, the problem with like relying on the distinctiveness of the political and having Machiavelli like try to solve that problem for you is that like the, the, the distinction between politics and economics is for the first time under capitalism a problem in itself. So you want to get at the specificity of the political, but this can always reify the distinction between the economic and the political, which is interestingly mm -hmm. in his time, not true. So like mm -hmm. he sees it as primarily political and he occasionally references other causes. Like I don't think he has a monocausal idea, but he's dealing with politically constituted economic power in a way that like we're not dealing with now. So when like modern theorists appropriate Machiavelli, I guess I'm only flagging this like tendency to reify the political as special is because I feel like in a lot of left populist writing, they have like in pushing back against economic reductionism, I think it seems undeniable to me that there has been a refetishizing of the state. So there's this way in which that dynamic can reproduce itself based on the conditions that we're currently in. And I think that's kind of a problem and just like making Machiavelli your ally for politics specifically. Well, also, um, you know, I, I just want to like quickly, you know, jump off of that because I, I, I have this question with Machiavelli, especially let's, you know, I'm sticking with the prince here. So it's not only that he's talking with the specificity of, of the political or politics, but, you know, this is also written towards a specific notion of how power is constituted. And by that, I mean, it's the question of leadership. This is not a how-to manual for, you know, the unwashed masses. This is not a how-to manual for what does it mean to build power from the ground up. Many of his historical examples deal with, because these historical figures clearly had made themselves available to history by virtue of the fact that they had either grand successes or, as often, grand failures, that, you know, this is also a vision of politics that really focuses on what does the leader do? What is can the leader accomplish? So, you know, I can say a little bit why I might think that might be a limitation, but let me stick with the positive. The positive of this seems to be, you know, I think many people do think of politics in terms of great leaders for better and for worse. And what this is opening the question is, so what does it mean to lead? You know, what are the capacities you ought to have in order to accomplish your goals? And so even, you know, you know taking on, you know, sort of what Lillian is saying, I think we can, you know, you know, push it and say, well, what Machiavelli is asking is, if you really want to be pragmatic in the field of politics, and by that you seem to take yourself to be a leader, I'm talking to some hypothetical person. So what are the virtues you would need to develop and what are the analyses that you need to develop in order to know what virtues you require in order to develop develop any sort of orderly force. Yeah, and how do you analyze the conjuncture? No, I like that. Yeah. Because, yeah, how do you understand those virtues, but also how do you analyze the conjuncture? Because understanding, like, understanding society is obviously something very different than trying to change it, right? And so when you have a partisan political project, the knowledge you have to mobilize is very different than the knowledge that, it's not unrelated, right? But I would presume that it's quite different than if you're just trying to understand how Rome was composed the way it was, for example, at that time, what economic forces made it were, were responsible for generating its particular political form, which I think a good historical explanation does. 
But if you are engaged in like a, a revolutionary project and you have a kind of partisan ambition to alter the social field in an important way, then your kind of knowledge, or at least this is what I kind of gather from Machiavelli, is that your knowledge of society as a field of forces, of course, includes economic forces. But for him, it includes a whole bunch of other forces as well, right? <laughs> he even like he even includes like the humors of the people that you're dealing with. Like you have to take that into account. Like what what is the kind of particular culture that you're operating with? What is you know he includes factors to do with you know geography and all of mm. these different elements, right? The field of force relations is complex, and I think that it's it's totally viable to go a Marxist route and and to say that well, what's determinative? The determinative force in that field of force relations is the economic forces. But you still have, from the vantage point of a political project, to deal with a whole diverse set of forces that go beyond just economics. Does does that kind of respond to what to your to what you were saying, Lillian? Not okay, not really, because okay. I feel like the, the the field of forces. What I'm saying is that in order, so I actually I agree with what you're saying about the the leadership and the skills you need. Like I do think Machiavelli is useful in all of those ways and understanding the myriad forces. I think I was jumping ahead a little bit from where we were in the conversation to like how Machiavelli is configured today as mm. either distinctively, you know, the person who thinks about the political and not just the economic. And I, I think that that on the left is, is a problem because it can end up like what you're saying, like, of course, it's not about the ultimate causes. It's about whether or not you understand that that problem is in itself part of our distinct conjuncture and the complexity of forces. Mm -hmm. So like he is looking at a complex field and he is dealing with politically constituted power. When he talks about politics and economics, he doesn't need to specify them. They're not different. Mm -hmm. We live in a modern state and a modern economy in which they are different. So when we analyze our conjuncture, we have to take the separation of the economic and the political, at least institutionally, as a part of our field of forces. So it's not just about what's like the ultimate cause. And I feel like what I've seen in theorists who want to talk about the political as something distinctive is that in saying, aha, it's not just the economic, it's also the political. Like what we end up doing is then focusing on the political as opposed to an integrated analysis of how of what is actually complex and distinct about this particular set of institutional problems that we have. And then the other part, so that's like on, on the left, the kind of fetishizing of re-fetishizing of the political is what I'm worried about. Then in terrain that isn't necessarily of the left, like the kind of Republican appropriations of Machiavelli, there's undeniably just a re Reinscription of like what we're talking about are just political institutions, like civic virtues, constitutionalism, mm -hmm. and so on. So I feel like that is kind of the dominant weight that Machiavelli carries. And I think it's very valuable, but I also think like there there is something that I get wary about, not because I don't think it's valuable, but because I feel like that separation gets not integrated in the analysis as a part of the the problem. It ends up being like, well, we can't want to add in the political, you know, it's not economics aren't the only causes like fine, but it's actually the, 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 the two of them and how they appear distinct institutionally well, sure. are, are not. So yeah, maybe that was jumping ahead a little bit to like the interpretations from where we were at, but. Well, okay. So 
shifting shifting focus slightly like one of the things so i was thinking about this line by althusser in one of his machiavelli pieces um because it is also it is the case that he machiavelli is trying to think about you know politics and for all of the reasons that you're saying lillian and i think you're totally right like the the sort of apparent separation of the political and the economic is a feature of our reality that was not present in the 1500s but althusser says that Machiavelli is like bearing witness to and is theorizing a process of what he calls political primitive political accumulation, which I think is really fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, and so like he is dealing with a certain configuration of politics and economics and how they're articulated in a way that's distinct and different from what we have today. But he's also seeing something like the birth of the modern nation states um, and and you know, trying to figure out how to position himself within that historical trajectory and to, you know, influence and determine it. Like, you know, the prince ends with this, like, call for the formation of an Italian state, uh, a process that he saw being, you know, if it had ever really started, certainly unfinished and, like, you know, continually failed. Um, and so I just, I wanted to just, like, kind of throw up this question of, like, how we read Machiavelli as someone who's trying to think about the processes by which political forces are constituted and political structures are constituted and like the sort of birth of the nation state, modern nation state as like a kind of specific moment of that. And maybe wonder what, what that what that reading might be helpful mm. for us like today on the left in light, in light of the distinctions that you're making. That's actually really helpful because there's a, there's something else that I wanted to bring up that I, I why I was also really excited about reading Machiavelli. So um, in uh, this uh, collected volume called African American Political Thought, Melvin Rogers and I believe Jack Turner are the editors. Michael Dawson, a political science scientist at University of Chicago, has this amazing essay called Marcus Garvey, uh, The Black Prince. And his main argument in this, uh, in this article is that Garvey actually read Machiavelli and took him very seriously and it molded his political vision of what does it mean to create a, a black nation state. And Dawson's argument is that what Garvey took from Machiavelli is that it's not just you know, this notion of virtues of the, of the leader, but the, one of the virtues that he takes Machiavelli um, uh, to say the leader needs to have is an eye for fortune. So we've talked a lot about virtue, but not mm. enough, I think, about yeah. fortuna. And okay. you know, what Garvey saw and what he thought he saw in Machiavelli is this notion that what makes also the leader able to steer political events is they can see the opening. So that's not completely up mm -hmm. to them, mm -hmm. but being able to see when the balance of forces and powers creates an opening, that's up to fortune. And that you know you need to sort of craft that sensibility, and so what he's getting from this is that you know um, he's arguing that Garvey sees that in order to create a nation state, you know we need a leader who can see the openings for you know um, the creation of a new a new politics. And so what we're getting in, in Machiavelli is not just you know you need to have these virtues; you need to be able to see the conditions and seize the moment. And I am at least the way that I'm reading Machiavelli. That really is invested in this person of the leader. It is not mm -hmm. movements that seize the moment. It is you know, leaders who can grasp it, grasp the, the opening of fortune or fortuna. And that is what you know, um, allows for the creation of something like a nation state. And so you have people who have the correct virtues, but if fortune is not on their side, mm -hmm. Well, what can you do? You know, there, there's only so much one can do. And so I want to like zero in on this, you know, specific political capacity of being open to fortune and seeing when you need to make the, the move towards whatever your goal is.
Yeah, this is part of why like uh, Machiavelli is obsessed with the case of Cesare Borgia, right? Who is like this dude, if I'm not get mixing them up, I think it's Cesare Borgia, yeah, yeah. who is like, who does everything right, has what I would have identified as all of the correct virtuous capacities, right? Like is do is strategic and cunning and like putting on the right face and for, fortune just crushed him, right? Like he wasn't able, like the, the conjuncture wasn't favorable. It doesn't matter to a certain extent. Like you, you're not going to be able to force these kinds of developments in the absence of what you called, Will, like the, the opening, right? And so like figuring out how to identify it is like a really interesting sort of strategic and political question as well. Yeah, this is why he doesn't offer kind of universal and timeless accounts of the virtues, right? He says that the, the situation is changeable. And so like our relationship to it also has to be changeable. And he always points to these people that get stuck inside of a certain set of precepts that they want to govern by. And then, old people, he says. Only yeah, the old people, yeah, exactly. Too, yeah. <laughs> and it works for a bit, uh, you know, until it doesn't, and they can't adapt and alter those precepts. Uh, I think we call that like flip flopping or being inconsistent. But for him, that's you know, that's like the peak of virtue, right? The ability to actually adapt um, to the to conjunctural changes, to adapt strategically to conjunctural changes. But I, I want to just say something else about this, um, the idea of primitive political accumulation that you pointed to, Gil, that, as Althusser's expression, and showing that, you know, the the state does not, it's the origin of the state does not lie in all the kind of nice stories that we get with social contract thinkers, right? And so if you think Hobbes, for example, right, Hobbes says, he has this line in, um, in Leviathan where he says that in the state of nature, right, the two car cardinal virtues are force and fraud. Right. Well, for, mm -hmm. for Machiavelli, force and fraud are just straight up like the virtues of politics. Right. The, it's, not, it's, not, it's not like in the state of nature that once you get into civil society or once you get into the state, now there's a different set of virtues. Like, that's crazy. Like, look around your, you know, look around anywhere right now. I mean, do you really don't think that we're governed through for, force and fraud? Right. So give me a break. But I think. Wait a minute. <laughs> what? I'm going to take my take my votes back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, where I saw, saw you going is like, you know, also what you get with Machiavelli is, you know, so what are we doing when we're trying to understand politics? So, you know, I, I think about like, you know, the, this current moment in the United States of trying to paint this rosy picture of how the United States came to be, rather than mm -hmm. talking about all that messy stuff at, at, the, at the beginning. And so with Machiavelli, <laughs> he would say, you know, if you, if you want to forget that, you're going to actually miss, you know, what politics consists mm. of. That you're going to, um, it, this is the way that I think about it. You know, contracts are nice, but I think Machiavelli would say contract can never truly mitigate the, you know, the forces of fortune, changing and shifting conditions. And so if you think politics is a sphere where we can, you know, the aim is to finally stabilize everything, freeze it in place, and then we can just run on habits, well, he's going to, you know, it seems as if he's saying something like, you, you can't fall asleep at the wheel. You have yeah. to remember that the, yeah. this needs constant recalibration. And that doesn't, that's not an authorization of like your unbridled force and violence, which I think you know, that's how some people read Machiavelli. They read Realpolitik as um, unmitigated ruthlessness. I don't think that that's where he's going. He's simply trying to say that this is how politics emerges. This is how you know, it continues to rearticulate itself. And if you want to like, you know, turn a blind eye to that, don't be surprised when you find a knife in your back. Don't be surprised mm -hmm. when things unravel for you. Yeah, he says very specifically that there are two kinds of political combat, right? He says there's two ways of contending in politics, by laws or by force. Mm 
And I think that one of the popular ways of like seeing, uh, he says armed force, right? But I think one of the popular ways of seeing Machiavelli, like you're saying, Will, is that it's all about force. It's all about the element of ruthlessness. It's all about, you know, the willingness to use violence. But he's very key that he says, you know, politics requires both natures. And part of what virtue is, is like being able to distinguish when we're supposed to be man and when we're supposed to be a beast, right? It isn't mm -hmm. about always being a beast. It's not about always, it's just unbridled, the unbridled attempt to seize power or, or to maintain power. But it's about being able to distinguish at what moments principles are important. And, you know, the attempts to, to move through institutional or legal channels, if you want to give it a more contemporary ring. And then what other times it's moving through institutional and legal channels is literally insane. It has no prospect of actually bearing any fruit. I was going to say, reading Machiavelli, it makes me you know, think about so many of the times when there are sort of left political movements and you know, the virtue is there, but they completely misread you know, what the conditions were. You know, they completely, you know, you know, one could use the example, say, of something like, you know, Black Lives Matter. And, you know, uh, kind of, you know, adopting this idea, at least a formal organization that, you know, um, a, a nonprofit way of trying to bring pressure on the government is the way to go. And completely sort of misunderstanding that that is exactly the way you can get captured in this field of politics. Mm. And it mm. strikes me that it's not easy identifying what the openings are and what the virtues are required for those openings, but at least what we can draw from Machiavelli is that that type of cultivation of sensibility is necessary if you're going to navigate contemporary politics. Yeah, I was, think I th I was thinking about this similarly in terms of what I've increasingly started to just call the, the crisis of civil society. So you all know that I've, I've been pondering the problem of nonprofits for a long time. And I think I think hap happily there seems to be a left wing ecosystem that's kind of getting hip to like taking this seriously as a structural issue. But there's a way in which like for what I've noticed in political theory, at least since the early 2000s, there was this turn in critical theory, political theory, just kind of like kind of like the liberal left of the theory world, let's put it that way, that just thought civil society was the dopest. You know, it was like the way to, to combat the bureaucracy of the state, you know, a more active civil society. And like this discourse has just gone on and on and on. And in the meantime, civil society was changing. First of all, it was being dismantled in many of like the you know, like when we think, where do people go? Where, what are civil society organizations today? We don't even fucking know. They're NGOs. They're nonprofits. I mean, like your bowling league is gone. Your church is imploding, except for, I think, in minority communities. Your trade union is eroded. You don't go to your library for your reading groups. Like, you know, there's what civil society? And then the homeowners association. This, that's all that's left. Right? <laughs> yeah. And then Still you have going this, strong if you already have a home. This <laughs> nonprofit. Um, like, you know, you have this nonprofit industrial complex or like the social justice industry, whatever you want to call it. And people just seem to look at this all like very uncritically. And I'm not trying to slam anybody because I think it takes a while. Like it takes some experience in movements to get frustrated with the roadblocks that they they put up to like see the, see 
and unfortunately you have to work for, with them. I don't think there's like a clean break you can make from the nonprofit world at this point, but to see a problem there in the first place. And it just made me think about how the analysis of the conjuncture is lacking, like so strongly mm. lacking in this way that um, is kind of definite, like mind bogglingly not there. And it's like without, without that. And that, that I do think is kind of the, the materialist like contribution is like, what tools do you need to analyze the, the conjuncture? Um, because that's, that's not just about the state, actually. That's, that's a series of intermediary apparatuses, power um, centers, and power centers yeah, yeah. and you need to understand what they're, what they're doing. Um, and if you don't have a social theory there to kind of like help you do that, then there's a way in which like whatever virtue you've got going on, it's going to be like kind of <laughs> channeled down the wrong river bank, like river, you know, mm -hmm. it's going to be like kept corralled in the wrong place. But I think Machiavellian virtue is about get acquiring that sensitivity to power centers, mm, right? Like I see. getting getting extricating yourself from all of the moralisms and. You know, we are witnessing in our contemporary moment, I think, an explosion of all manner of new moralisms. Right. And, mm -hmm. and like Machiavelli's, I think what Machiavelli pushes us to do is to extricate ourselves from the moralisms, stop fighting on that moral, moral terrain, and to, mm -hmm. to identify in the field of force relations where the, where the real genuine power centers are, the real points of leverage, right? And to, and to exercise our power there, right? If the, oppor if the opportunity... Yeah, I think that's a better way to put it, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. No, no, no. I think cultivating the virtue is a part of like getting a grip on the not like making the analysis is itself a part of exercising virtue. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if we're thinking about like what does it look like to develop a good analysis of the conjuncture, there's like another part of all of these sorts of things that he says in all of these texts that I wanted to kind of draw our attention to and see what you think. So because he's got, I think in interestingly, like a weird kind of sensitivity to social antagonism already uh this comes up in a couple of weird places right so like it happens in chapter nine i think of the prince where he says that the two different dispositions are found in every city the people are everywhere anxious not to or not to be dominated or oppressed by the nobles and the nobles are out to dominate and oppress the people um, and, the and then similarly too. in the and in the discourses too um he says in every this is in Chapter four, book one, in every republic, there are two different tendencies, that of the people and that of the upper class, and, and, and that all of the laws that are passed in favor of liberty are born from the rift between the two. This is, again, where he's saying something like, um, you know, people are condemning that there's this, that there are these conflicts or disturbances between the people and the upper class in Rome. And he's like, well, the, out of that conflict comes all of the laws that engender the virtues and freedoms that make it a cool you know, a good historical example. But so I don't know, I just like, I was wondering what you all thought of it. It's because like, there's a reading again, there's so many different ways to read that. And some people read it as like a moment of like ph philosophical anthropology or political anthropology. That like people tend to just be one of these two things or that these are inborn habits. Or if there's like, you know, maybe a nascent sensitivity to like the, the kind of, you know, emerging political or economic classes that it's happening around his time or, you know, what to do with that. And I mean, it's, what's interesting too is because he's like we were saying before, kind of trying to do like a political science, like I think that his sympathies are pretty clearly on the side of the people, but he's also looking back and being like, well, actually, you know, even right there, he's like the question of like, you know, whose hands do we want him? And he's like, well, if the question is longevity, historically, the nobles have led longer polities, stuff like this. Like he's got this sort of empirical, commitment to empirical research, but also I think his, his politics 
are in fact on the side of the people. So I don't, there's like a lot there. I was just wondering what you all had to say about that. That's actually an open question for me. I, I do sense that there are, there's a tension between the, you know, the Machiavelli of the prince and the Machiavelli of the discourses. You know, at least mm. you know, the, the chapters in the Machiavelli of, of the prince, it's harder for me to make the argument that his sympathies are on the side of the people. At least the perspective he is taking is that you know who shapes history? Great leaders. And you know, mm -hmm. great leaders get an opportunity to 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 do that. And so, looking you know between you know um, these two texts, you know the question I have for you is like, what is the philosophical role of historical examples that Machiavelli chooses for us? This is a you know maybe this is a strange way to try to approach politics through you know the way that I'm understanding Machiavelli through a series of examples and trying to generate you know more or less general uh, inferences that we can draw from them. And so is it that Machiavelli is trying to say, here's a general anthropology of human beings, or is he saying, here's a particular constellation of these chosen examples, and from that we can you know, develop more general intuitions? You know, so maybe this is a more question of methodology, of how do we use history to try to make our philosophical or political arguments of what we ought to do? Do the examples form the politics, or you know, are the politics you know, forming which examples that we're choosing. And mm -hmm. so that's why it's hard for me to understand you know, where Machiavelli's sympathies actually lie, because he's using so much of historical examples and trying to like, you know, make a sort of collage and create some sort of coherent picture that mm. it's unclear to me, are these examples arbitrary? Are they because of other presuppositions he has that he's not being necessarily forthcoming with us on? You know, it's, it's unclear to me. Because I, I, I do think that there is a tendency of wanting to use history to inform our politics, and Machiavelli's doing something like that. But he's, it's not that he wants us to repeat those histories, even though, like, you know, that's why it seems different, the, the discourse, because it seems like, he, like the remote Roman Republic is pretty dope. Like, but he, yeah, is he yeah, really yeah. counseling us to do that again? That seems completely mm -hmm. different than the Machiavelli we have of the prince. Yeah. Mm, I mean, I, I think it is really enigmatic because he has that line in the discourses where he says that i don't understand how people just read history as like i don't know to accumulate knowledge of facts like we should be looking at the deeds that were done and wondering how we can do like how they can inform our practice basically to par to paraphrase i don't know about the the question of the philosophical anthropology is interesting but on that i don't really know i've struggled with how to you know how to interpret that but on the question of method i do think that i i buy gramsci's insistence that there is a kind of methodological partisanship in, in Machiavelli. And that, ha that means that, you know, the way he reads that is that there's a specific way of understanding this concept in Machiavelli of, uh, my Italian is not really great, but verita effectuale della cosa, the effective truth of the case or something. It's apparently really hard to translate. Um, but the way that Machiavelli sees the kind of relationship to the truth of the conjuncture is that it can only actually array itself in its objectivity from the vantage of a particular partisan project. And I think something similar applies to his view of history, right? That if you don't have a particular practical task like in mind, then history just arrays itself as a kind of vast field of neutral facts, right? Mm -hmm. But the way that you bring history to life, just like in the way that you can get the best, and this is where it's interesting and I think really dialectical, the most objective understanding of the situation is to, is to come at it in all of its chaotic variants with a principle of selection, 
for what it is a practically informed principle of selection for what it is that you know that sticks out to you what is it that is foregrounded and what falls into the kind of background what appears as just noise and what appears as you know a real kind of a, a real signal and mm. I know that that's that's very that's very I'm abstracting a lot from the particularities of his cases, which you probably wouldn't love too much. But I do think that there is a, a, a larger kind of methodological partisanship that that informs the way that he looks at both history and the way that he understands how virtue relates to historical conjunctures. You know, that really, you know, brings to light for me, you know, it's really fascinating that in our current moment, there's all these battles over history. And, you know, whenever you try to tell one story, someone will say, you know, aren't you leaving out this thing that happened or that thing that happened? And what's so frustrating about the dialogue is, you know, if we want to look at a Machiavellian standpoint is it's the idea that there is some sort of neutral standpoint towards history that can make it come alive. But especially if you're talking about national politics and national political history, you know, that is always going to be partisan history. That doesn't mean you just make things totally. up. But you know yeah. the fact that you cannot tell all of history without excerpting certain things, deselecting other things. You know that makes again the question of well, what are you trying? What use are you trying to put history to? And if history is supposed to inform our politics, well, then we need to actually be clear in our politics, and that will help us understand the examples that we're choosing from. Mm-hmm. But you know, you mm-hmm. when you uh, depoliticize history and make it seem as if what we're trying to do is simply just understand history and all of its truth yeah. and all yeah. of that. Well, you're going to get a bunch of nonsense because it turns out history is you know, sufficiently contradictory enough that you can actually right. make a case for any story you want to tell. Like, you know, honestly, someone could do that. There is a way to tell a, a deeply anti-racist story of the United States. I think it's wrong. I think you know, you're lying, but you could do it from real historical examples. And so what Machiavelli, you know, it, it seems he's doing is like, you can't avoid the partisan standpoint if you want to make something come alive to lead you into cultivating the type of insight for your contemporary moment. That you have to bite the bullet on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. And like, he, he, he's, he's clear about that. Like we could see maybe like one way to talk about what Machiavelli is doing then is like injecting partisanship into even these questions of like method or of vision or of selection when it comes even to describing like states of affairs. I always think about that like kind of amazing line in the dedication to the prince where he ends it by being like, you know, if you want to sketch a landscape, you got to climb up to the top of a mountain. Right. And like to comprehend the nature of the people, you got to be a prince. And he's like and he's saying this kind of like as a as a a flippant, you know, defense against like, who are you to talk about what it is to be a prince? He's like, oh, well, to understand what it is to be a prince, you've got to be a citizen. Right. There's this sort of um, perspectival. Yeah, you got to be in the valley. Right. In order to see the mountain. Right. There's this sort of perspectival and so like situated and for him inextricably partisan character to any of this knowledge production, whether it's political or historical, which I think just has to be right. I don't yeah. know. Um, I can't. I can't think outside this anymore. What is he partisan toward exactly? Like, I I get what you guys are saying about um, the role of like. I think you're saying something true about Machiavelli, all of you. But like we said that he wants to build a, a nation state, but I don't know. That seems like a thin kind of partisanship to me. Like Florence is being invaded. There are these barbarians. Like they're like I'm just wondering like what specifically is going on because. Like the idea of like uniting Italy, the fact that Italy is even a thing that exists seems kind of like far afield. So like there's something specific mm-hmm. he, he wants and I, I'm i just wondering exactly – because it's not like he, – he seems to be partisan towards 
having this outcome of a stable city-state, certainly. Yes, mm-hmm. that's right. Um, I think that's but it. But it's, is it partisan in some other other way, or is that it? I mean, maybe, like, you know, Owen, this, like, historical context better than I do, but, like, I think of him in this context as being very much like Hobbes, right? And so, like, coming out of, like, a period of, like, extraordinary upheaval, tumults, there's all kinds of, like, instability and violence and, like, no no one can rely or count on anything. Like, and he says, I mean, maybe being, you know, hyperbolic, but I don't know how hyperbolic he thinks he's being when he describes the situation of um, the Italians <laughs> under the, quote, barbarians <laughs> in the 26th and final chapter of The Prince. He's like, we've, been, we've suffered every indignity for so long. Like, we just need some stability, right? And so, like, you know, what does that take? What does that look like? And part of why he likes the Roman Republic in the, in the discourses so much is precisely because of its, like, apparently unparalleled and on, at that time, like, on, more or less unmatched, like, stability and longevity, right? You know, and so the question then, again, is always conjunctural for him. Given the conditions that exist at the moment, what would most likely bring about a situation of political or social stability? And he thinks something like, you know, now maybe this like gives context for why is he talking about great leaders and unification projects? And I think it's I think it's something like that. But then yeah, he's like, obsessed again, with like, durability. Yeah. 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 Right. But I so, yes, there's durability and stability. But it's, so it's, I'm just again, I, I feel like that is definitely true. I feel like it needs more, like it feels a little thin to me. So is it the republicanism mm-hmm. he's partisan toward? Like he, the, the Roman Republic is serving this kind of guiding role for the kind of historical examples. He's like, he wants a republic and he's choosing his examples accordingly to kind of show that the republic is what's needed. Um, and he wants people to be able to navigate fortune in such a way that the republic is what we end, one ends up with, ideally. I, think I mean, is the that the kind of... Yeah. I yeah. mean, I think there is a kind of republican partisanship in the discourses. I think in the in the Prince, it's a much more narrow, like a mm-hmm. much more narrow partisan project, which, like we were saying, has to do with liberating Italy from the influence of the, of the French and from the Spanish and from being under what he calls the barbarian yoke or under the controls of barbarian. But there he uses the language of non-domination. Right, so it's to establish Italy as a unified nation state, whatever that means in the 1500s. By the way, yeah, you're right to point that out. I'm not sure exactly what 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 is entailed by that or what he means by that. In, in any case, I think there's a much yeah there's a much more narrow project in, in in the Prince, which has to do with liberation and the absence of like external fetters, which is a pretty restrictive yeah. and, and it is a, a pretty flimsy. Like, I agree. I, I, no, I feel like you just added let not flimsy to it. Like I feel like adding the he had a a vision, you know, like there's a certain set of, there's a kind of domination that's being experienced and he's trying to figure out what the antithesis of that domination would be. And that like helps me understand the perspective on history that will kind of got us going on. Yeah, and and I think the discourses, which I don't know as well, but which are, I think there you get a much more rich account of what a political order, which is characterized by non-domination actually looks like. Of course, they're, they're not so radically distinct. Like there are lots of points in, the discourses where he describes the, the necessary ruthlessness of, of leaders and certain things like that. But, but yeah, I think that's where you get, you get a much more rich account of what is, what is a political configuration, a new order look like that is characterized by non-domination and which, which can, which can have the, the durability of the 800 years that Sparta survived for or something. He's obsessed with that 800 years that, mm-hmm. that Sparta lived for, but, but, but do it in a way that where popular power isn't just extinguished. 
What's really incredible reading Machiavelli and reading figures from this time is like, God damn, this was a time when philosophers or politically engaged people, they had vision. They had mm -hmm. like an idea that, you know, what if we can reshape the world and what would it mean to do that? When I compare Machiavelli having this vision of like, you know what? Fuck it. Why don't we just unite Italy? Let's just create that. <laughs> like, like I, I think it's weird because like we live in a time where like Italy just already exists. Germany already exists. France already exists. But like that was not the case in the 1500s. And then I think about now, what vision do our political leaders have now? Um, basically promises like, hey, it's going to suck, but we're going to make it suck just a little bit less for you. <laughs> like their vision, especially in the United States, really amounts to let's just let the good times roll. And, you know, it's just like, it's like really fascinating to me that if Machiavelli were alive, he'd look at these people and say, you know, how did these people become your leaders? There's no oh virtue God. there. Not just like, not like moral bankruptcy. There's a complete lack of vision of what does it mean <laughs> so to try to reshape the world? And You'd be like, the, you guys yeah. are so yeah. cucked. It's to so hear, Yeah, I just want to hear his analysis. I want to hear his analysis of, like, the fail sons. You know what I mean? Like, Hunter and Don Jr. Fail sons, okay. Oh, my God. Just like, the, like, the, your ruling class are those people? Like, yeah, like, yeah, like geez, that's a, I think that's exactly These fucking guys. Like, and, and, but they're still in power, though? Like, did you all see the examples I gave? Like, it's not supposed to last for this long. Like, what is, what am I no, missing no. here? Uh, but on oh my the God. okay, <laughs> he might be like, actually, some instability can go on and on and on. Like, yeah. Like, yeah, he'd be shocked. He'd be like, "That's not what I learned from history." But on a more serious note, like, I do think that it's important to you know to try to have this this vision of what would a new world look like. I think now maybe there's a more of an opening for that, but I think still for a lot of people that sounds totalitarian, that sounds ridiculous, that sounds like a nightmare. But the world we have now is not the world that always existed. The idea that there would be these stable nation states in Machiavelli's time, it's like, what are you talking about? How did that happen? And so there's also this sense that things can be radically remade otherwise. And this like sort of thinning of vision, especially from our leaders. My God, Machiavelli's the best person to read for that to see like, you know, you, you, I think of that meme of like the buffed up dog and then the little dog who, who's like, you know, just like- <laughs> We really are the little dog. We are the little, little dog. dog. Machiavelli's like, I unified Italy. We just want some universal basic income. <laughs> We're not going to get it. Just a little but, So actually, I wanted to... So there was one other like theme or concept that I wanted to draw our attention to, and I think connects to this actually, Will, because like, God, our leaders are so servile and stupid that ostensibly like, this should not have been able to last, and yet there's no end in sight. So like one of the things that like Machiavelli talks about in both of these texts that I'm always fascinated is, is whenever he starts talking about a free people, or a people or a multitude that's in the habit or accustomed to freedom, right? And he says things in like chapter five of The Prince. He's like, look, a city that's used to freedom, like you're either going to have to like, um, if you're trying to conquer them, you're either going to have to accommodate yourself to them almost entirely or you're going to have to kill every one of them, right? Or like, you know, whoever is the master of a city accustomed to freedom and you don't destroy it, expect it's to be destroyed very yourself. Very difficult, yeah. Right? 
it's extremely difficult if people are used to being mm. free or having this they're in this habits habit of freedom. of freedom these habits of freedom and he also talks about it in terms of memory he, he says things like um it's yeah it's still in chapter five he's like yeah why why can you expect to be destroyed yourself because whenever there's a rebellion this kind of city this free multitude justifies itself by calling on the name of liberty and its ancient institutions, never forgotten, despite the passing of time and the benefits received from the new ruler, right? And he says, like, in republics, these free people, there's more life, also more hatred, greater desire for revenge. The memory of their ancient freedom does not and cannot let them rest. And the, so, so the mm-hmm. conclu- conclusion, QED, you might have to kill all of them, right? <laughs> it's so but, um, wild. But I think, yeah. like... It's an amazing line, but like yeah. I think like part of the thing to like draw from this is that like we are fundamentally not in the habit of freedom. We are so unaccustomed. We're such an unfree people, multitude or whatever you want it. Like I j- I just think that this idea of like the nature of um a social body having memory, mm. having like a acculturation and custom like this and freedom being one of its vectors that seems so absent. We're very today, accustomed to to servility. Like lots of bad shit happens and everyone hates it. And it's like, man, that sucks. That's the new objective and unchangeable reality we have to reckon with, I guess. Yeah. That's our fucking attitude, yeah. But I also yeah. even, you know, you know I don't want to like, you know, keep going too long, but you know, I think that's a really important point when I think, how is the national memory of the United States retold? The examples right. that are chosen yeah. are always great figures great leaders and this is going to be me eventually building to my critique of Machiavelli what I this over focus on individual leadership even if he's trying to do something subversive I'm completely open to that but like I think the the more obvious reason reading is this idea of great leaders shaping history is there something pacifying on that of you know, the idea of waiting for leaders with vision to come who will do this and that all, all the social antagonisms that the United States faces, eventually some great person comes along and usually it's the figure of a president and they sign something and then it's good again. How often we invoke FDR, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, um, JFK, the fact that they're just mere initials, you know, creates mm-hmm. a type of national remembrance habit of, well, that is how history moves. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone believes it. That doesn't mean that there aren't countervailing forces. But I think it brings us back to the importance of the examples one chooses, because the examples are also a form of creating a type of memory, a type of habit of how one reflexively sees, well, when fortune opens up, who is the actor? And, you know, right now, I guess it's Joe Biden, which... Holy shit. <laughs> like, like, wow. Like, okay, that's wait, not wait. the man we expected. Okay, that's <laughs> the man okay, we deserve. So I, I, Jesus. Okay, I see all of that. Obviously, I'm not buying into the great man of history thesis either. But I do think that, like, I want to give Machiavelli just a little bit more credit. Because in almost all of these examples that he's giving, too, right? Like, you know, they stick out. The names stick out because they're named, right? But then he also, like, these are always stories, like, almost always stories, too, in which, like, you know, the people, the citizens that are he's trying to govern, like, a lot of times they're not able to, like, establish the power they want because of the character of the people mm. or, like, you know, because of the ways in which, like, the people rose up and took them down. Like, we don't have names for them in the same way. They're not properly named the way, like, Agathocles or Tullius is, right? But, like, it's not just this monologue of great men in Machiavelli in the same way that it, I think you're right in our, like, you know, United States retelling, and oftentimes it is. Yeah, I think that, like, I think that that's there in Machiavelli and it annoys me, but... At the same time, I, I wonder if one way that you could one way that you could rehabilitate it to an extent is that I was thinking of C. L. R. James and the way he talks about leadership 
in Black Jacobins and, uh, and elsewhere, where he says, like, yes, okay, we have to write this book about, this book is largely about Toussaint Louverture. Um, but if, like, somehow they had managed to kill Toussaint Louverture, there would have been a thousand more that would have grown out of that particular <laughs> historical conjuncture, out of that population, right? Like, that people. So, of course, like, mm. I wonder if there is a way, and I'm not saying I know how to do this, but I wonder if there is a way to to rehabilitate that conception, the emphasis that Machiavelli places on leadership by making sure not to disattach it from the populace that that leader leads. And he himself very, very rarely disattaches them from the populace whom they lead, which is why he says, you know, these are all the ways that you can't, you know, overstep certain boundaries, or these are the ways that you can't build resentments among them. Like these are the leaders just end up looking so thoroughly dependent on the humors and attitudes of the people that are being led um, mm. that I think there is an opening there for thinking, thinking a, a more complex relationship between leadership and, I don't know, a broader, more collective political subject. Although I don't think it's like necessarily easy. Like, I think the concern is right. I mean, yeah, this is why like people like Althusser and Gramsci were infatuated with Machiavelli's because they're trying to work out a relationship between the party and the class. And so they're mm -hmm. yeah. trying to work that out. And Althusser is like, as we talked about in a previous episode, you know, he's reading, he's thinking about why, like Lenin is a Machiavellian figure. Mm -hmm. And he's mm -hmm. thinking about the kind of political virtue, you know, that this dude had and why it's unintelligible to philosophy and so on. And this is a persistent right. theme on the left. I mean, you know, we might be in a, in a period in which people are thinking less about the idea of a revolutionary party, but we're still still certainly thinking about how to have a party that actually represents working people, which in the U.S. has never come to fruition. And I think many people dream about, salivate about, think is absolutely necessary, but don't don't agree or don't know how to, you know, get to that point. And there's a there's a way in which the the relationship between the party and the class even in a different form will continue to come back so i do feel like this question about leadership is remains salient even for people who take you know the masses seriously as agents in history right yeah it's also the case that like you know there's all these weird dangers about fetishizing leadership and one of them is that like it lets the rest of us off the hook right but mm -hmm. like i still think that it remains true that like le leaderlessness isn't working out very right, well right, for the left right. at the same time, you know? And yeah, there's a danger uh, of fetishizing that as well. The idea of exactly. organic spontaneity, these things will just happen. Right. And so, you know, I guess like you, know, we, we might be nearing the end, but I, I take it, you know, from conversations with you, Lily, and I've read the Philip Pettit book on Republicanism, there's this emphasis on, you know, how to mold and build, you know, sort of social character. And, you know, that strikes me as a real really difficult question because you know if you simply put it that way I think to a lot of people that sounds like social engineering how do we make these people be the type of people we want them to be I'm not saying republicanism is doing that but I'm saying how do you especially if you're with Machiavelli you want this to articulate actually in the political arena which was you know Owen's second question you know I don't know how well it goes starting to talk about well we need better character without you know it sounds immediately like you know this sort of dangerous social engineering moralism but it strikes me that character isn't unimportant. If character is right. about the, the types of habits and actions and practical um, analyses you, you develop as a person, then that question can't be off the table.
and Machiavelli clearly has it on the table. I feel like there are just more and less conservative ways to construe this. There are more like Aristotelian Mm. interpretations of the idea of political virtue where like basically what you're doing is becoming the kind of person who can serve the social function that you, like a functionalist version of virtue, which is just kind of accepting a role and, and doing it well. And then there probably is a more like communitarian version where you kind of think that everyone has to be united around similar values. And I think liberals Mm. don't like that for the reasons that you just said. (laughs) And then there are, I think there, there are other options. Like it might be the case that citizens do in fact have to have a kind of constitutional patriotism like this is something Habermas tries to say whether it's convincing I don't know but like it tries to preserve the kind of liberal ethos and the rest of society I guess but try to unite people around a political community and then I think in a more a different way of putting it could be that people need to have the right like right kind of virtue to act politically but and that might be around a constitution or something else but you need to but that's one kind of action and being mm. a virtuous citizen isn't the same thing as being like a moral person so i think there are different i, I don't have mm. a good answer but there are different options on the table for how to construe this but i feel like the intuition for republicans is a very compelling one which is that in order to live live in a free be a free individual you have to live in a free society and therefore the individuals in it have to maintain it and i feel like the liberals that want to just be like no you know justice is you know procedural you know you don't need to share common values even if it's political values or whatever like i just don't understand how we all maintain this freedom together like mm-hmm. it seems mm-hmm. the republican vision seems to already invite us to think about power more relationally and so on and then when it comes to these concerns about stability and i just feel like republicans have what our intuitions are and liberals create this kind of counterintuitive world in which it's totalitarian for thinking we need to maintain our society. Um, (laughs) The real freedom was complete dissolution at the end of the day. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So like fragmentation and atomization, just doing whatever the fuck you want just becomes like freedom, you know, very confusing. So the question mark. So, you know, the thing, the, what I like about the Republican uptake of Machiavelli is even if I don't know how to solve that individual versus the constitution or the polity problem, I feel like there is an intuition there that it's important to preserve in that like modern, you know, liberal Mm -hmm. common sense has kind of forgotten Okay, well, on on that suggestive note, I think that does it for us today. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we're doing, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash leftofphilosophy and give us five-star reviews and leave us a comment on on your podcast app. Before closing out today, we'd like to just take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you and are really grateful for your support. We're shouting out our patrons 20 at a time until we're caught up, starting with our earliest supporters. So today, we'd like to thank Hannah Jacobs, Dallas Jokic, Matthew Thompson, Adam Baltner, Ryan Sheldon, Peter Eck, Jordan Daniels, Lee Beck, Nicholas, Anka Gladnick, 
Manu Quadros, Nathan Holmes, Paul Bowman, Aaron Jacobson, Travis Jones, Justin Case, Tensa, Nora Barnacle, Zeki Salah, and Matthew Barnfield. Thanks very much. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Bye.